You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. And you, Armitee asked herself, what language do you speak? A dead language. The language of a faraway time, of a world that no longer exists. Of a time when they had believed the prophet who claimed that religion was the opiate of the masses. They had not seen religion as a polite, innocuous, private issue, as Diane did, or a topic for cocktail party conversation. Not for them the benign, new age, crystals and angels view of religion shared by so many of her American friends. She and the others had seen religion as a ferocious beast to be tamed or as a weapon that the ruling class used to keep the masses in servitude or a demon genie that the politicians let out of the bottle every time there was an election to be won. And then mobs of Hindus and Muslims and Sikhs bludgeoned each other to death, set houses and people and children, children on fire or threw acid on the faces of young girls walking to college, or rioted to ban books or movies or paintings that offended their religious sensibilities. Sometimes Armaiti and the others had gone on fact-finding missions after a riot or a massacre, traveled into the hinterlands of Bihar or Orissa, witnessed the aftermath of religious fervor. It had turned her off religion forever. Or, rather, it had given her a new faith. She and the others had proudly called themselves secular humanists, the words honey in their mouth. The only gospel they could believe in was one that preached food for the hungry, clothes for the naked, and justice for the oppressed. Thridi Amragar is an author, essayist, and critic. Her books include the novels The Weight of Heaven, The Space Between Us, If Today Be Sweet and Bombay Time, and her memoir, First Darling of the Morning. She's a professor of English at Case Western Reserve University. She's the recipient of the Nieman Fellowship to Harvard, the 2009 Cleveland Arts Prize, and a 2006 nomination for the Penn Beyond Margin Award. Her new novel is The World We Found. Thank you for joining me, Thredi. Thank you, Rick. It's a pleasure. This is such a captivating novel, and we just become immersed in the lives of these wonderfully drawn characters. When did you first meet these characters as an author, and how did that come to pass? Um, I was visiting India. I was visiting family in India in 2008 and happened upon a chance meeting with a friend of mine who I knew from my college days in Bombay but had lost complete contact with for, gosh, for over 25 years. And um, because we ran into each other, we ended up spending an afternoon together you know, basically just reminiscing about the old days and catching each other up on our on our lives today. And at some point in the afternoon, I asked her if she was still politically active the way she had been when she was in college. And she said no, and I asked, how come? And she replied that, um, you know, she, she referenced back to a historical event that had happened in Bombay in 1992, 1993, which were the Hindu-Muslim riots that, that really tore the city apart. And uh, she said that there was something about that 
episode that was so incredibly painful and disillusioning for her that she sort of took that as occasion to reevaluate her life and decided that she didn't want to be a political activist anymore. And uh, when I left her that evening, I think I knew what my next novel was going to be about. Uh, it was going to be about friendship. It was going to be about contrasting, you know, contemporary India and Bombay against the India that I grew up in in the late 1970s. And somehow these riots, uh, which really had a very visceral impact on many of us, uh, were going to be uh, in some ways at the heart of, of the new novel. One of the things I think that it makes this novel so interesting is the way that the history, the religion, the culture of India all come to us, not through lectures or exposition, but through the lives of the characters. And I think that's a really, that's what grabbed me about this novel because I became involved with the people and the people all had been influenced by these things that were uh, frankly, beyond my knowledge. I mean, what I know of, of India is it's a place. <laughs> so, uh, talk about, um, as you created these characters, talk about the the unit of four, the, the gang of four, as it were, that, that uh, dominate the novel. Yeah. Well, there's four of them, and their names, quite simply, are Armaiti and uh, Lale, Kavita, and Nishta. Nishta has two names in the novel. She has her given birth Hindu name of Nishta, but she marries a, a Muslim guy directly out of um, college. And uh, because of the events, um, uh, uh, the political events that I just referenced to, the Hindu-Muslim riots, um, Iqbal has a kind of conversion himself, and he goes from being this extremely secular guy to becoming a conservative Muslim, and he forces Nishta to adopt a Muslim name, Zoha. You know, I hope that what I've been able to do in this novel is draw a sharp contrast. I mean, the four of them are certainly united in their politics and their shared history, but they are four different individuals. And I'm, I'm hoping that the flavor uh, and the individuality of each one of them uh, comes across. You know, Lale, for instance, is this rather flamboyant, outspoken, blunt uh, person. Uh, Kavita is a very successful architect, but she's much more reticent than somebody like, you know, her best friend Lale is. Uh, Armaiti is a I would say a pretty spiritual person who comes to terms with her terminal illness through taking solace in nature. And Nishta really is the person who complicates what seems like a simple enough journey for the rest of them. One of the things I think that uh, makes this book so interesting is the way you, it's a its a very slow burn of a book. It's We we have an immediate goal because the the book begins with the the news that our mighty who who's who an expatriate she's living in America right uh, she's been diagnosed with brain cancer and doesn't have a long time to live right and she wants to get her her the, her gang of four back together again and this at first seems like a fair should be a fairly straightforward task as readers but you immerse us in this in this uh culture and, and in these people's lives. And it rapid, what seems simple becomes complicated. And it's so entrancing. Did you, how much of this, the plot of this book did you know when you started writing it? Um, I think I had a fairly good sense. I mean, once I realized that, um, that, that there would be two 
political events at the heart of this book, that all four characters, actually all six characters, because mm-hmm. even the two men, Iqbal and the man Adish that Lale is married to, all six characters would keep referencing back to these two events, one of them being the Hindu-Muslim riots, the other being this demonstration that they all go on in their youth in the late 1970s that goes terribly awry. And each one of them, each one of the characters responds to that demonstration and carries the memories of it in a slightly different way. So once I once I knew that these two events would be at the heart of the novel, it was fairly easy to sort of figure out what would happen from that point on. So the plot of it, or if not the entire plot, at least the shape of the novel, the outline of the novel, the narrative arc of the novel, came to me fairly soon into the process of writing it. Well, one of the things that I think makes this book so involving is that it's a lot of the plot is it's plot by revelation. We the characters are revealed and their pasts are revealed, and that moves us forward. And we really want to find out who these people are and what they've experienced that makes them this way, the way that they are today. And I'd like you to just give us uh, some of the maybe the flavor of your experience of these same times that informs the writing of this novel. Were you uh, uh, a young radical in the 1970s? Um, Well, I don't know if I would classify myself as a young radical, but I was certainly somebody who was interested in politics, and I was was a student activist, Mm -hmm. you know. So in that sense, these four... This is the first novel that I've written. You know, readers often ask you the question, how much of writing, fiction writing, is autobiographical? And uh, my knee-jerk, reflexive answer in the past has been to say, not much. But I can honestly say that I can see myself, for the first time in my writing career perhaps, see myself in each one of these four female characters. There is some uh, aspect of my personality and perhaps even my life experience from those days in each one that informs each one of these characters. Well, that's what I think must uh, make them all so come. They really, really come alive, and, and it's really exciting to to read about them. What was happening in India in the 1970s? I mean, what were students up in arms about? I remember. You know, that's a tough one to answer because there were issues at the local level Mm -hmm. and then there were probably larger, you know, more global uh, issues. But uh, I I have to remind you, I was really young in those Mm -hmm. days. I mean, I was in my, not even my late teens. I mean, I started college when I think I was 16. So uh, I was quite young when Mm -hmm. I was involved. But one of the things that I remember with sort of great fondness is Bombay University, uh, I forget what year this was in, it was somewhere in the late 70s, had had announced that there was going to be a fairly steep uh, hike in tuition. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we ran some figures and figured out that this would have meant, if it went through, it would have meant that 20,000 of the poorest students, you know, the ones who probably needed a college education the most to lift them out of poverty would have to drop out. And we just thought that was totally unacceptable. So there were massive demonstrations and protests against this proposal. And uh, if memory serves me right, the university actually backed off the first year of the protests. And then I think the following year, they sort of did a end run around us and snuck in the hike before we had a chance to mobilize against it. Uh, but we were successful in, in sort of defeating them the first year. That's a really great story. That's very <laughs> inspiring. As you created a, a fiction kind of around this and around your life, 
one of the things I think that's interesting is the way that we meet these characters. So talk about just creating these characters as they come together in the novel because Lale is a really interesting character. I really right. like her. She's a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. She's she's probably my favorite character too out of all all four of them. In that she's extremely spirited. She's she's ever so slightly hypocritical, but in a way that just makes her <laughs> human and endearing. In that there's a contradiction between. I mean, Lale sees herself as working class. And she's anything but working class. She's married to a guy who's an incredibly successful, you know, again, a college sweetheart, you know, one of them in the 70s. But Adish has sort of grown up uh, as India has changed and grown up. He prides himself of being a worldly man, you know, somebody who has changed with the times. And I think although he adores his wife, he sees her as somebody who, who remains stuck in the past. And it's actually this quality, this contradiction in Lale that that makes me so fond of her, frankly, because it makes her achingly human in my mind, you know. Uh, but she is, she's a live wire, you know, she mouths off, she tells off uh, at a party, at a very fancy party, she tells off one of um, her husband's clients because she thinks that his political values are, you know, out of line with hers. And uh, I just find her amusing and endearing in some ways. I think that's a really a good scene, a key scene for us as readers, because as you say, we do get that she's hypocritical and she's she's somewhat aware of this, but mm-hmm. she blithely blasts past it. And you really play on this kind of the archetype of the embarrassing party scene. Right. Well, and in this country, I guess we would refer to Lale as a limousine liberal, you know, uh, in that, I mean, her heart is truly in the right place. I mean, she genuinely believes in, you know, uh, workers' rights and, and all those things. It just so happens that she herself comes from wealth and marries a man who is very successful. And that contradiction between the life that she thinks she ought to be leading and the life that she finds herself leading, it's something that I don't think Lale will ever accept or make peace with completely. And, and that's okay. On the other side of the Pacific, we have a mighty and... I I love the scene with her because, as you say, she's spiritual. She but she belongs to the First Church of Gardening, and I know so many people who who really yeah. feel that same way about yeah. gardening. Yeah, yeah. Armaiti again. You know, she's a former radical. I, I'm not convinced that Armaiti has completely disavowed or given up on her past beliefs. Also, I mean, she's fundamentally a person who believes in justice. Uh, But again, I mean, she has moved to America. She lives a solidly uh, middle-class existence. But RMIT finds great, great solace in nature. Uh, She's a wonderful uh, gardener herself. And almost every scene, and I wasn't aware of this when I was writing the book, but some very astute reader, you know, it's amazing to me how readers are always so much smarter than writers are, because they make connections that you as a writer are sometimes totally oblivious to. And somebody uh, noticed this at one of my book readings and made the point that every time we see Armaiti, it's usually out in nature in one way. You know, she's either working in her backyard or some such. And it's really true. And she's just one of those people who is, you know, and unfortunately has been forced to really come to grips with the larger questions of 
what makes life meaningful, what makes it worthwhile, and what legacy she wants to pass on to her only child, Diane, in the time that she has left. She's been diagnosed with a a malignant brain tumor, and she doesn't have much time left. And I think you do a good job at using this as a plot driver, but not overplaying it. You even have her at one point think, she says, she thinks how lurid and cheap the words brain tumor sounded. And I think that's a good way of giving the reader sympathy, creating the urgency, but not overplaying the the, uh, drama. I, I I wasn't writing a Bollywood melodrama here. You know, I didn't want I didn't want the sections involving RMIT to be maudlin. And in fact, to be honest with you, in the first draft of the book, I almost went to the other extreme. And after I finished it and was rereading it, uh, I realized that that I was that RMIT in the book was almost acting as if she had, you know, an ingrown toenail or something rather than a brain tumor that was going to kill her. I mean, she was being so matter of fact, not callous, but just matter of fact about her illness. And it made me realize that I had gone to the other extreme and that wasn't very realistic either. And so I I changed it and I gave her a few scenes where she does express anger and disappointment and fear at what's coming down the road. But she makes a vow just to herself early on while she's in her backyard, saying that she will not let the brain tumor reduce her to be becoming something that she isn't. I think there's a line that says something like, there will be no deathbed uh, conversions for me. You know, She's not suddenly going to become a religious person. She's not suddenly going to find God. She will remain true to herself the best she can. And I, I think, too, she's made a decision to not take treatment. And we respect that and we believe that. And I, and pulling that off as a writer, that must have been tough. I mean, it, it's all in the prose that you do. And Well, and it's also in the examples that I give. I mean, the backstory is that RMIT's mom back in India mm-hmm. uh, herself battled uh, breast cancer and chose a different path than what RMIT chooses. You know, she she blindly followed and did every single thing that the doctors asked her to do. And the end result was still the same. She dies, and she dies a fairly miserable life. The book doesn't really dwell on that. There's just some passing references to it. But enough, I think, that it gives you a sense of that, that her mother's death really acts as a kind of cautionary tale for, for RMIT, you know. And there's also another passage in the book where she realizes that the choice is not between seek treatment and live for another 10 years or go without treatment and die within six months. You know, because of the kind of illness that she has, the choice is seek treatment and live for eight months, nine months, and forego treatment and live for six months. So there's not that much of a difference that treatment at this point is going to make for her. And so she decides not to. You referenced the the mother. And one of the things, the decisions I think you made with this book going in, and I think it was a really smart one, was this book could easily have been twice as long. Mm-hmm. And I think that <clears throat> what the decision you made to make it to to pare it down and keep it focused, yet not um, over cram it. It right. doesn't seem rushed. It just seems that it's very taut. It, did you have to cut away a lot? I did. 
I did. Uh, for instance, just an easy example, um, the first incarnation of the book had a whole middle section that talked about this demonstration that they go on in the late 70s in great detail. I mean, there's, I think there's, there were like three chapters that simply dealt with the demonstration because in my mind, that felt like such a pivotal event in mm-hmm. all their lives because really that, that particular march marked a kind of before and after for so many of the characters. And I just thought, how could I not explain that in great detail? But again, when I reread it, I thought, do I really need all this? You know, isn't it enough to just sort of imply that this was an important, this was a big deal in all their lives? And far better to spend, you know, the pages and the space that I do have in showing them today and how they still in their minds kept going back to that particular day. That was a fantastically good decision. I because, hope so. Because one of the things that's fun about this book is uh, that as readers pleasurable is putting together that picture of that of these events. We don't know them. They're not. We've. I haven't lived in India, and I don't right. know any of these events. So for us as readers, it really it makes us more involved. We feel more part of the process. We invest more right. in the characters right. because we're reading how one character just has feels guilty. Another one, you know, they feel guilty and bad for different reasons right. on the same side of the same right. event. Yeah. Yeah. Less is more. Whoever first <laughs> said that really knew what they were talking about. You do a great job with the two male characters in this book too. They're very important, and they're very important. They're yeah. they're they're as important as anybody else, and they're they're we like them. <laughs> we really like both of them, especially a dish who is just a, a he's a he's a good guy. He's yeah. he's a charming fellow. And, yeah. and as you were creating these characters, uh, did you consult? Uh, uh, the men in your life, or uh, did these characters just come? No, I didn't. I didn't consult the men in my life just because <laughs> I've grown up around them, and I, you know, I can't profess to ever say that I know exactly what another human being is thinking. But mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm of the, I'm of the belief that sort of differences between men and women in terms of, you know, thought and feeling are greatly exaggerated. I mean, when push comes to shove, we are all human beings. And, you know, we react. Yes, in some ways, there's vast differences between how men and women react to certain events. But I felt like I had known people, especially like Adish, not so much Iqbal, but characters like Adish. I grew up around them. I knew men like that, you know, just hearty, jolly, well-meaning, you know, always first to help you if if they sensed you were in any kind of danger or needed any kind of help. I grew up around people like that. So Adish came very easily to me, and I like him very much also. So I'm happy to hear you say you like him as a character. Uh, well, I liked all the characters in this book. I enjoyed, that's one of the things that propelled me through it so fast, aside from the ever-tensing, tensioning plot was that I, no matter who I was with, I knew that, okay, I'm going to get to know this character more. That's great. And this comes to this kind of idea of uh, plot by character revelation, right. which I think is an interesting uh, decision on your part. Well, it's it's not so much a decision as just a core belief. I mean, even as a reader, uh, I can always tell when a plot is being imposed from above onto a novel by by the author, and I dislike uh, novels of that nature. Um, I I always believe that plot is organic. I mean, plot should be grassroots. I mean, plot to me is nothing more than 
you know, characters acting in fulfillment of their basic natures, you know, and whatever those actions that come out of their basic personality becomes plot. That's what drives a novel forward. So based on that, it's not like I had to make up a plot. It was just asking myself, okay, what would Armaiti do in this situation? Or Adish, being with everything that you know about Adish as a writer, how would he react to this particular situation? And once I had my answer to that, that becomes plot. So that that's why it makes this book so intense, because I, as it ratchets towards the end, it's a page turner. I read this book in essentially uh, one sitting, wow. and uh, and I couldn't barely turn the pages fast enough at the end. One of the things that, that is at the center of this book are the, the religions of India. That, that's what drives the characters together and apart. And But you do such a great job of the, in the traditional show, don't tell. We, we just get to see how each of these um, characters experiences their religions. So I'd like you to talk about, as a writer, um, as you created these characters and said, okay, um, uh, Nishta is, is Hindu and... Right. and uh, Adish is he's Parsi, Parsi. Yeah. and and uh, Iqbal is is Muslim. Is Muslim. Yeah. Uh, talk about making these characters and the way the uh, religions interact, and the way that informs the way the people interact. Wow, it's a great question because you know certainly I was not thinking of it in precisely those terms um, when I was writing each of these characters. See, with the exception of of Iqbal, who in his sort of later incarnation when the novel opens and we meet him is somebody who's become very religious and is clearly very influenced by Islam, by his religion. The rest of the five of them really are not terribly, you know, formally religious people because they were sort of young radicals in their in their youth. And even the passage that I read, that that aversion to organized religion, you know, they almost have a jaundiced view of it because um, they've only seen it being used to divide people in India, you know, by the politicians. So I don't know that any of the other characters are really, I mean, yes, uh, for instance, Nishta was, and Kavita were both Hindu, they were born Hindu, but I don't know that they are practicing Hindus necessarily. Mm-hmm. And likewise with the Parsi characters. Adish, we get a sense, has increasingly become sort of more faithful to his religion as he gets older. But even that, he's, you know, he's, he wears it lightly, I would say. He takes it seriously, but he still wears it lightly, unlike somebody like Iqbal. Um, So I, I guess it was enough for me as an author to know what communities or what religions or what, yeah, what religions all these characters came from. But I don't think there are too many passages in the book where they act, you know, I don't think Kavita acts a certain way because she's Hindu versus Lale acting a certain way because she's Parsi. I don't know if that's a satisfactory answer or not. No, that's exactly true. And that's, I think, one of the things that makes the book so interesting because it seems, I guess... We get a sense that these characters are realistic, and they're not. We're you're, we're not seeing kind of caricatures. Yeah, and that's... I, and even Iqbal. And I think one of the things that I I really like Iqbal, even though he's not a nice guy, and he's he's deeply screwed up by by his religion, <laughs> right. actually. But 
you do a good job at showing how that can happen and what the effects are without hammering us over the head with uh, you know a kind of a, a partisan feel. We just feel it feels very organic. And there's a scene where he talks with a dish, and they kind of for a second they both loosen up, and that's so charming. Uh, well, thank you for that last statement, and thank you most of all for the first thing that you said, which is that you like Iqbal, because to me, frankly, this book would be an abject failure if a reader walked away from the book, um, you know, thinking that Iqbal was some kind of a monster. You know, uh, Iqbal does things and commits some actions that I completely disagree with. You know, he becomes a very oppressive force, perhaps, in his wife's life. He really, really tries to control her movements and her actions. But one of the things that was very important to me as a as a writer in this book was to show how and why Iqbal becomes the way he does. Uh, Iqbal starts out as progressive, as liberal, as secular as any of the other characters. You know, when we first see glimpses of him as a long-haired, fun-loving, very carefree college student. And really, the novel traces what happens to Iqbal, again, back to the 1992-93 riots, because that is a different kind of a wake-up call for Iqbal, being a minority uh, in India, being Muslim, and and being, frankly, much more directly impacted by the riots than any of the other characters are. You know, for all the other characters, it's either their religion or their class that protects them from being in the line of fire. Uh, Iqbal is the only one uh, Iqbal and his family are the only ones who are vulnerable uh, to what happens on the streets. And that, in turn, completely changes It changes him. And, and we understand why. And I think you do a, a wonderful job of talking about these big national events, the student you know, uprisings in the 70s and the uh, riots in the, in the 90s, um, in a way we experience them through the characters' eyes and the way we experience our own, the things that happen in our own country and in our own lives. Right. And so, but give us a little bit of a background on the 92, 93 riots because that was a very, those are, that was a big deal. Yeah, and one way to sort of explain why the riots affected so many people, even people like myself, you know, I was living in the West by then. I was in America for at least 10 years before the riots happened. Uh, I was not physically there, and yet they had a very deep emotional impact on me. And here's the reason why. Rightly or wrongly, those of us who grew up in Bombay, you know, really believed that there was something special uh, about that city, that somehow it was immune to the kind of religious religious madness that so often gripped the rest of the country. It was, you know, it's the most cosmopolitan city in India. It's the most westernized. It's truly a melting pot. I mean, people uh, gravitate towards Bombay from everywhere else in India uh, and live, for the most part, you know, in harmony, side by side, with, with people who are quite different than than them. The closest sort of American equivalent I can draw is to New York City. That, that sense of New York is different than the rest of America. There was something special about it. And to continue with that analogy, I mean, imagine not just New York, but all of us, America, on September 12th, 2001. 
Um, we woke up to a different country than the one we went to bed in the previous night, correct? Mm -hmm. And uh, something very similar to that happened as a result of those riots. I'm not saying that there had never been any kind of disharmony or communal craziness in Bombay prior to that, but nothing I don't believe on this scale. And for people of my generation anyway, it really came as a huge wake-up call, and it's a huge shock. And even I, being 10,000 miles away from all this madness, uh, really felt a kind of severing of this close, affectionate bond that I'd had with the city that I grew up in. It just felt like something had changed and that there was no going back, you know. Uh, and I think each one of these characters, in their own way, experienced something very similar to that. And that draws us into the book and into the lives of these characters. And it's so nice to experience India, which is, to me, admittedly, a foreign country. Absolutely. I, I don't know much about it. Right. Um, but to experience that in this book uh, in a manner that's uh, organic, I, I, f I feel like I've not that it's not that you have learned about it by reading it. It's more like I went and lived in the, in the this the suburb with these people for a couple weeks and got to know them. It would be a complete. It's one thing to have a novel that would like give you a tour, right? And this is like you just go and visit and stay with friends for two weeks and kind of get immersed in their lives and whatever their little personal peccadilloes are. Yeah. And I think that that's a, a really effective uh, way as a reader. It's much more enjoyable to get that kind of. Uh, immersed in their lives feeling. Well, thank you. I wish I could take credit for that, but in a way I can't. I mean, I just write the way I do, you know, and it's not like I intended uh, it to be any one thing. It's just that I, I felt like I knew these characters well enough that I suppose that feeling of familiarity carries forth to the reader also. And and there's also some um, very universal uh, truths because we all know people where there's groups of people who, you know, the bonds we form in college are strong. Absolutely. And you capture that feeling. And, and when they last throughout your lives, you capture that feeling really well. And one of the characters I think who's really well done is Kavita, who, as you say, is a she's very reserved. And it's interesting and challenging to help your readers get to know a reserved character. <laughs> yes, that's true. I mean, if if I um, if I struggled with any of the characters, uh, Kavita was probably the one that, in some ways, was hardest to bring to life for precisely the reasons that you just said. But I want to go back to something you just said a minute ago about, you know, the book feeling familiar because it's in a sense it's a universal story of. Friendship and, um, you know, when I walked away from that meeting in 2008 with this old friend of mine and, and literally saw at least the outline of the book in front of my eyes as I was leaving her home and knowing that this would be my next book, one of the things that really struck me about the conversation that I'd had that afternoon with her was how much her own experience of being politically active and then getting disillusioned and deciding that it was time to turn inward and focus on family and self, as opposed to trying to change the larger world, how much that journey or that trajectory echoed the baby boom uh, boomer generation in this country. You know, So you had the activism of the 60s and 70s, and then the 80s were a time of 
retreat in some ways, you know, from the political arena and oh, yeah. focusing very much. So, I mean, <laughs> I mean, that's really been the story of America in the last what thirty, forty years, and and I was excited by by the realization of that parallel because it it told me at that time that even though my book would be set in India and most of the characters would be Indian. Um, that there was something global that happened. You know, that those were a kind of euphoric period, the 60s and the 70s, not just in Indian history, but certainly in American history and, you know, in European history also, that that this book had some wider application than just a specific localized story about four Indian women. And I think uh, that's one of the things that makes it really enjoyable to read as well, though, you, you come up... What's interesting, too, is the plot sneaks up on you in this book. The tension sneaks up on you. We kind of... You do a little bit of misdirection. We think it's going to be one thing, and yeah. then it sneaks up and it becomes another. So did it sneak up on you as a writer? Um, trying to remember the answer to that. No, I think I had a fairly good sense from, if not at the very start, Certainly, by the midway point um, in the book, that that you know what happens in the last thirty pages mm-hmm. has to happen. I struggled a little bit with uh, again. It's hard to talk about it without giving away the ending. I, I struggled with the specifics of what would happen in mm-hmm. those final scenes, but I had a fairly good sense of of the confrontation that that sort of occurs at toward the end of the book. Well, I. As a as a reader, it's really great to be you know um, swept up and swept away, and I think one thing I, that interests me was that I, I get the sense that you could write another novel that would follow hot on the heels of this. Are you planning on doing that? No, <laughs> you know it's funny. It's a question that's coming up a lot in like uh, book readings mm-hmm. uh, where readers are saying, "Is there going to be a sequel to this one?" And I had never, and I, I understand why the question comes. I mean, I mm-hmm. think I think perhaps this this novel could have had one more chapter. Mm-hmm. You know, that could have actually. Um, well, I'll just stop there and yeah. say that it could have. I can see how it could have had at least one more chapter, um, but uh, it's that old thing that we were just talking about about less being more. You know, less is more, and I just thought chopping it off, uh, stopping perhaps a little abruptly uh, the way the novel ends, uh, for me felt like an effective um, choice. Uh, and you know, I'm I'm just somebody who looks ahead. I'm not somebody who spends a lot of time looking back. So uh, it would be very hard for me to do a sequel that would have to be meaningful in its own right. You know, not a sequel that simply is a coda to this book, but but that takes the sequel in a brand new direction. And I just don't know how to do that. So. Well, I think that's what makes this book so effective is that this book is about something. Right. And it's that, it, that's at the core both of the plot and the characters' lives simultaneously. Right. And we get to it you you get us into the characters and as we get to know them it we know it's going to go somewhere. Yeah, and I, you know, I the only reason to spend one or two years of your life uh, writing a book is for it to say something. And if I'm not convinced of that, then I just it's it's not safe for me to start on a new book unless I believe that it it, it stands for something. You know, I, I'm just curious about you know your perception of your audience um, for this book. When you're writing a, 
when you wrote this book, did you think, well, I have to put this much information in to make it a little bit more uh, palatable or comprehensible to Americans? And is it published in? Was it published in India it first? Is, it is. No, not first. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I, I'm. I'm guessing that it came out in India. Around you know the book's just been out. Uh, gosh, earlier this month. So mm-hmm. I think it's out in India at the same time. Uh, and it's it's in English in India. It's not translated into local languages or mm-hmm. anything like that. But in the question about audience, you know, I try very, very hard um, not to think about audience at all um, when I'm writing a book. Because it's, it's, in fact, quite the opposite. I almost play a game with myself where I think, oh, I'm just writing this for me. You know, mm-hmm. uh, because it's terrifying. I mean, you don't want to embark on a project already thinking of what sort of critical reactions uh, to that book might be, because you'd just paralyze yourself by, by if you had to think about all that. So for me, um, I I try very hard to block out all sort of quote unquote commercial considerations. I just want to write a book that feels like it has integrity and that feels emotionally honest to me. And I don't worry so much about, oh, I've used you know, an Indian term and will an American reader be able to figure out what this term means? I figure if they don't, well, they'll just go on and still lead a happy life. It's not the end of the world if they don't know what a single word in a book means, you know? Uh, because I've certainly read, you know, books by Latin American writers and others where I have not understood what an entire phrase means, but life goes on, you know? So, <laughs> Well, actually, I think that, that happens a few times, and, and there's sometimes we figure it out right. just in the context, and other Absolutely. times, like you say, you just kind of blow past it and right. enjoy it, and it adds to the... In a sense, it becomes a, a description, a, f- a flavor for the scenery. Right, exactly. And, and a language flavor. And, you know, the sound of your prose is very nice. And, you know, we can, there's parts of this you kind of want to read aloud. There's this, there's a, a scene near the end uh, that our mighty's list. She, there's a kind of a, a list scene, which is really right. beautiful. Uh, do you read these aloud as you're writing? Um. No, not out loud, but um, I lived them in my head so much before I actually put them down on paper Mm. that, in a sense, that's some weird equivalent of reading them out loud, you know. (laughs) I just carry them in my head for a couple of days, you know. And I know the section you're talking about, the one that starts with the lovely things. Mm -hmm. And um, that one I really did work on because it was actually about twice as long as it currently appears in the book. And um, that did feel like a totally impressionistic, you know, poetic kind of a a section to me. And I really felt like, as all good poetry does, it would benefit from being edited rather severely and keeping it tight and focused. Uh, One thing I wanted to ask about, I, I guess you're a Simon and Garfunkel fan. I guess I am. Yes, you're, you're talking about the references to the boxer. Yeah, at and the end. and uh, bridge over troubled waters. Oh, that's waters. right. I forgot about that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I grew up listening to Simon and Garfunkel and just adore them. Well, I think it 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 provides a, a when we read that, it provides a nice uh, soundtrack in our minds to the book again, and it ha- gives us the flavor of the characters' lives, and that's a well done. I thought. Yeah, it's um, you know, it it also. Uh, in some ways, it also situates the characters, and that you you get a sense that these are not people who come from you know 
uh, working class backgrounds, for instance, because chances are they would not be familiar enough with English and certainly not with American pop music if they came from a different class background. But these are these are all characters who came from rather affluent, you know, uh, families, middle class families, uh, and had access to American music, American literature. I mean, frankly, much as I did growing up. So, the, in a sense, these are the Indian baby boomers. I guess they are. And, yeah. And, yeah. And and that's you know, and I didn't think of that till just now. But that's I guess what gives the book uh, its power because we see ourselves in a kind of a a, a mirror that we don't realize it's a mirror. Right. Until we until and, after we're and, done. Yeah, and in a sense, it's a to some large extent, it's a mirror that's that's it's a creation of America. I mean, at least the pop culture references and all that. So now, as you were finishing this book, do you know what you're going to write about next? Oh, I'm halfway through another book. Uh, uh, at least the first draft, I should qualify that by saying. Yeah, it's a novel that has the tentative title of I Begins with an S. Uh, and it's the story. There are two major characters, uh, both female. One is um, an uh, immigrant woman who is married to an Indian guy who runs a grocery store um, in America, in a small town in America. And the other is this African-American therapist who basically, at when the novel opens, basically sort of um, comes to the rescue of the Indian woman. Um, and in the course of the novel, it's it's a kind of... It's a smaller novel in scope and ambition, I think, than this one is in that it deals more with domestic and intimate power differentials as opposed to, you know, making some grand statement about how society works. Um, but it is a different kind of exploration of power and how power changes hands, you know. So whoever, uh, I'm saying this badly, but whoever starts out at the top in the novel sort of ends up in a different place at the end. It's well, a bad description, sorry. No, that's 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 an interesting uh, description of many of our lives. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, uh, you know, for uh, and that's one of the things that makes this novel so good. You said that um, this is a novel that we realize in retrospect and only in retrospect is a novel that has grand ambitions, makes big statements, and, you know, has a, a, a big sweep. But the experience of reading it is intimate, involving, and it's very, uh, it's very much of almost uh, in some ways, it's very much a thriller, and it's very uh, engaging and page turning. Well, thank you. And that's a that's a I mean that kind of to pull that off is that that's an interesting uh, you whatever you did you it's like you took out what makes novels that. Gives novels like this a, the potential for bombast. Well, and I liked what you said earlier about you know you almost it's it's like playing with genres a little bit because mm -hmm. you 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 read the first thirty pages and you expect a conventional chick lit kind mm -hmm. of a novel you know just the story of these four women and explorations of their friendships and where they were and where they are now and you have somebody with a terminal illness so it has all the elements of melodrama right let's mm -hmm. face it it does. Um, but I'm hoping that towards the end of the novel, it turns into a different creature altogether. You very, know? Yeah. very much so. I've been speaking with Thridi Amargar. Her new novel is The World We Found. Thank you for joining me, Thridi. Rick, this was an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.